we kickstart more complex manufacturing in Australia? Now, the federal government believes yes. With a healthy dose of imagination, money and a new entity, the National Reconstruction Fund, negotiations between Labor and the Greens and crossbenchers in the Senate over the fund's legislation appear close to being finalised and apparently we'll hear soon about the fund's final remit and leadership. The $15 billion fund will deploy capital to key sectors like quantum computing and low emissions technology to augment the green energy transformation. It'll work to stop great ideas from going overseas and founders being routinely asked by money men, are you willing to put your home on the, on the line for this? Joining us now to discuss whether the dream is achievable is Jens Gurneman, who heads the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Centre. It represents more than 4,000 small to medium businesses, making everything from bionic voice boxes to trucks that are able to transport liquid hydrogen. And he's been a key advisor to Minister Ed Husick. And Louise McGrath is Head of Industry Development and Policy at the Peak Industry Body, the AI Group, the Australian Industry Group. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Jens, let's start off with a bit of an explainer. The way this fund has been described so far is that it sits outside of government and it would operate almost like a specialised investment bank. Um, What are the advantages and disadvantages of such an approach? The advantages are uh, the, um, is the element of independence and uh, competency. And uh, if you think about uh, the last uh, seven years and uh, changing hands of the industry portfolio, for example, having an organization sitting outside of government gives certainly continuity. Uh, is the CEF, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, because listeners would be sort of used to hearing about that one, is it something like that? I would think so. The final design will probably only be known until it has passed, hopefully the Senate very soon. Um, but uh, um, it is probably not too dissimilar. That brings a certain challenge. The first check coming out of CEFC um, took two years um, and uh, a comparable organization like Knife uh, took them four years to get the first check um, to the industry. So there's a challenge and time is of the essence. And Louise, how distinctive is this finance-based approach from other forms of industry policy or support in Australia, I wonder? Well, it, it really assumes that companies are ready for investment, whereas previous programs like the really valuable and highly regarded Entrepreneurs Program helped companies get to the point of investment. And then, of course, you know, the expectation is the market would, would pick up the game then. I think um, while the NRF is a really good um, to, as you say, invest in companies so that they, they can go overseas, we still need a lot of support to get companies to think strategically and to be aware of the new technologies that they could be embracing. Yes, I mean, as I understand it, Jens, the short-term funding cycles uh, in Australia, that's what's prevented industry programs and leaders who just think, well, I'm not going to put my home, you know, I'm not going to be treated like that. Will you put your home on the line? I'll go overseas. We've got to break through that, that sort of mentality. Is that how you see it? I agree with that. I also agree with uh, Louise uh, that we need to have investment uh, ready companies, whether the entrepreneurs program is the right vehicle for that. I have other views on that, mm-hmm. but I agree it has to be investment ready. Um, for 
the, uh, let's say, for manufacturing, which we don't see as a sector, but as a capability cutting across where everything is being made in this country. We have 47,000 of them. There's a you have 47,000 for, companies? 47,000 right. manufacturers in Australia and uh, 90%, around 90% employ less than 20 people. So if that manufacturer wants to get a loan, she or he has to put the house on the line. And uh, if we have, if we can overcome the scaling problem of these small companies finding other vehicles to advance their growth trajectory, um, that would be very important. And this is where the NIF needs to be ready for. And, and how would this compare these plans that are under, underway at the moment by comparison with Germany, say, with, with your, your native land? <laughs> I live here since 15 years and I'm Australian since over 10. Um, but uh, I give it, of course, away that I'm from Germany. Yeah, so we have the Fraunhofer Institute uh, for, wait for it, applied research, not just research, but applied research. So um, that is a 75-year-old organization and we have the same in the UK, uh, kind of copying the Fraunhofer model um, called UK Catapult. And the growth center, at least the way we set up the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Center, is not too dissimilar to that. Um, trying to steer companies, small companies, through the commercialization value of death. And we have significant impact in that. And there, as Louise correctly said, this provides the conveyor belt for um, the NRF to hand out a bigger check. Got it. And Louise, it's envisaged then, is it, that the fund will target critical sectors and support the commercialization end of the innovation cycle, not the early stage of development? Is that what you understand? That, that, that's right, yes, much further along the chain. I mean, the, the area that we really think, I mean, it talks about enduring capabilities, which is all part of that sovereign manufacturing argument. What we're really pushing for is sovereign adaptability. I don't know if you remember, you know, it seems way back at the beginning of the COVID crisis, we suddenly, as a country, realised we didn't have enough um, uh, ventilators mm. And, um, you know, quite a few sort of med tech companies adapted to whatever they made to, to make, um, you know, a suitable ventilator. But what I'm most excited about is one of our members in Ballarat, Gecko Manufacturing, who normally manufacture underground mining equipment. They too, in working with a local hospital, found a way to make a ventilator. So it's that kind of adaptability that we really want to encourage in investing. And uh, just to follow Jan's point, would that be employing more than 20 people, more than 18 people or whatever it was? Gecko. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. So yes, that's I a bigger, so. that's a yeah. bigger. Uh, if yeah, the, there's got to be more resources. If the fund is focused on commercialisation, what does Australia's landscape look like right now for early research and development, would you say, Louise? Well, I think the challenge is, um, particularly for manufacturing, the innovation is usually a, a, a process innovation or a new-to-company innovation, not a new invention, so new to, to the world, such as mm-hmm. often is found in biotech or, or medical companies. It could be a new way to, to scale, a new way to ensure quality control, which is, you know, Australia is really a competitive advantage. And the challenge for investors there, they don't have a piece of IP that they can take off. It's completely embedded within the company. And we find that's the real gap in the market Mm. when it comes to investment. Right. Uh, Jens, among your members, 
Can you think of a company that would be a strong contender for investment if the fund was running now? A firm that would be likely to receive investment that would lead to growth and more jobs and so on. You know, exactly what uh, Louise is talking about. By, by all means. We have worked uh, in over 140 projects with companies, with elite companies and other companies being involved, let's call it a couple of hundred companies, always with a research partner to resolve an industry problem, not the other way around. Um, these companies have done projects, have advanced their capability and by de-risking the technology and by management demonstrating that they can get the job done, they um, have already in the past demonstrated that they can attract a multiple of capital of what we put in into their project, a multiple by a fair amount. Um, and that type of conveyor belt, we highly put our best foot forward to continue that process so that bigger check sizes from the NIF in a de-risk environment can be applied to make that a success. And the example from uh, Luis with the ventilators is a great one. That makes the point of capability. In the early days of the COVID crisis, AMGC was approached and we put a consortium of our manufacturers together. Half of them never heard of what a ventilator is. But in five months, under the leadership of uh, manufacturer Gray Innovations, in five months, we produced 1,700 TGA-approved ventilators done, ready mm -hmm. to go. So that means no matter what you do in your day job, if you're a capable manufacturer, can make complex things, I'm not scared of the future other than the scaling and the, 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 the growing problem. And they can pivot, obviously. They have demonstrated that. But why doesn't it happen then? I mean, do we need an emergency to make something like that happen? It always helps, never waste that crisis. And COVID has brought back uh, the mindset of manufacturing capability, making complex things. The challenge is, if you see manufacturing as a capability of making complex things, that capability in an entire country is measured with the Economic Complexity Index. We are ranking number 91 in the world. Now we are the 14th largest economy. We are one of the 38 OECD countries and we rank number 91 in the world to make complex things. Now we have fantastic examples of very capable companies. We need to help them grow. We need to have more medium-sized companies or as we call it in Germany, Mittelstand. Mm, yes, yes, read about that. Uh, I mean, Louise, maybe this is pertinent. Um, about this issue of the individual companies highlighting some of the problems in our industrial policy because uh, it's it this new fund is about individual companies, yes, but it's about a greater whole, isn't it? What you like to call the ecosystem. What are you that, talking? That's a big sorry. emphasis for the AI group. It, it is because... Um, you know, what we really want this money to be for is not just one individual company buying a, a you know a bit, new bit of equipment, but what sort of technology and capability can we invest in to unlock future industries to ensure that we are, you know, we do still have such a dynamic um, manufacturing industry. Uh, and I think as, as Jens... Oh, sorry. No, go on. I was going to say, as Jens points out, you know, there are many um, high-tech, high-skilled manufacturers in Australia, and it's really important to acknowledge that their exports over the last 20 years have doubled. So that the low-tech, low-skilled manufacturing, you know, T-shirt manufacturer, those sorts of commodity things, that's certainly diminished. And the mid-tech, mid-skilled, such as car assembly, that's diminished. But the things you really care about in your, your passenger car, such as brake pads, things that are really critical um, and, you know, this small margin for error, those sorts of manufacturers 
as I said, their exports have doubled over the last 20 years. Look, just in the three minutes we've got left, let's talk about risk. Thus far, the government seems to only be talking about the fund making a profit, not a loss. Isn't risk part of this innovation process? I mean, failure is important, arguably, and has to happen. Why isn't the government at least alluding to this, Jens? Look, um, de-risking the investment proposition of the National Reconstruction Fund can happen before the first check is written. So, for example, if feeder pipeline of the project I was describing, which the growth center um, is applying so successfully, is a perfect pathway to demonstrate whether a company or group of companies are capable or not. So making then the bigger check a lower risk investment and return the investment to perpetuate the NIF, which I think is a great idea, is important, but we need to have both. These are two sides of the same metal. Mm. And uh, I wonder if it will be very predictable uh, stuff, dare I say, uh, Louise being produced. Like manufacturing does have the image of providing more jobs for men and MPs like Zoe Daniel have raised this issue of improving the economic status of women and making sure that some of the fund's money goes to sectors that employ and skill women. Is this something that should be given attention or is that too restrictive in your view? I I think it's too restrictive, but also a number of the sectors that they have identified, um, such as medical science and, you know, low emission technologies already have a high proportion of, of, um, you know, a female workforce. So, I I mean, I don't think that all manufacturing should be dismissed as a male-only industry. And you're shaking your head, Jens. Look, um, I would like to... uh use the understanding, the correct understanding of manufacturing, which is way more than production, way more blokes on the shop floor with a high-vis vest and a hard hat. If you embrace the entire value chain of manufacturing, there are the smarter jobs before production and the smarter jobs after production. These jobs are three times more seeing a female participation, which shouldn't surprise because they are the smarter jobs. And embracing the entire value chain of manufacturing is also automatically embracing more female participation and that is the right way to do. Okay, we'll watch with a great deal of interest uh, the uh, discussions as as they emerge. Thank you both for making it live more. Jens Gurneman from the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Centre, thank you to you. And uh, Louise McGrath, the Head of Industry Development and Policy at the AI Group, thank you to you. Thanks. Thanks. And um, welcome your thoughts. They're coming in. Yes, they always do on manufacturing. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.